Hi, I am Iria Enachimia. Let the truth be told. We are all voyagers, you see, going through space and time, searching to give meaning to who we are, to discover what our mission is on Earth. Sometimes what seems so certain, so obvious, turns out not to be, and what you thought you knew turns out to be not what you deemed it to be. Have you ever wondered why you turned up at a certain place at the time you did? Wondered what might have happened if it was another person you married or fell in love with? Would life have been better or worse? What if you had been born in a different town to a different set of parents? You're sad because you have problems. Then you meet someone else with greater problems, but with a big grin on his face. What does he know that you don't? I heard the story of a lady who missed her flight because those who should have woken her up from a nap failed to do so. She was livid, but even as she raged, breaking news announced that the plane she was scheduled to fly with crashed on takeoff. Life's many mysteries fuel our beliefs and the fear of the hereafter, of a life after life. Everyone, it seems, has a tale or two of the unexpected in his journey through life. And such tales heighten the mysteries and our fears. Are we slaves to destiny, to fate? Does human intervention mean a thing? Or should we resign ourselves to fate because we are programmed to succeed or fail? So, imagine yourself on an odyssey, on a Star Trek quest, on board a starship named Destiny. Let me tell you a simple story of how a simple, simplistic incident may change the course of a person's life with unexpected consequences, because of things we do or fail to do, because of what we accept or what we reject, or things others inflict on us. Even on Star Trek's fictional spaceships in which race and religious differences may be opaque, individual needs and choices surface from time to time and determine the course of the voyage, sometimes undermining collective goals, which makes me to believe that more than anything else, what shape the cause of our lives are the choices we make and the actions we take individually. I would have loved to be able to play the piano. The instrument fascinated me. It still does. And as a kid, I had opportunity to learn to play. A schoolmate elected to teach me for free. Maybe I would have turned out to be a great and famous musician. Why didn't I simply learn to play? Ah, that's my story. Seriously. My high school was predominantly Christian. I was nine. I had joined the choral society because I thought it was for people who loved to sing. It was, but aha, the songs that the society chose to sing were only Christian songs. It was actually the school's choir. I should have known, but I didn't even know what a choir was. And when I got to understand what I had gotten myself into, I responded with my feet. Any time my volunteer teacher approached my dorm to call me for practice, I bolted through the nearest window and got lost. Why? Because I knew he was trying to convert me to Christianity. Why did he want to do that? What was I supposed to tell my imam? My father. My parents were thoroughbred Muslims. They wore no talismans nor drank Quranic verses washed off a mullah's slate. They had no jihadist resolve either. But what was I supposed to tell my dad? That piano lessons lured his son away from Islam? Are you kidding? I was nine. I may blame society all I like for misleading me, but this many decades after, it still hurts real bad 
that the only reason I didn't learn to play the piano is that I was silly enough to consider it a religious instrument instead of a musical instrument, a church instrument. I had considered church and mosque, water and oil. They weren't supposed to mix. I didn't know any better. The hymn simply says God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Nowadays, I try to fit my own words into that song. Man moves in mischievous ways, his blunders to perform. Mine was a blunder which I still regret. I suppose everyone encounters religion quite early in life. After the laws of the land, the so-called good books determine much of our moral perception and our judgment of what is right or wrong. Some may deny it, but I doubt that there is anyone who has never wondered about the spiritual nature of man. We need to be very careful in matters of religion because of what they do to the fragile minds of our children. It took a long while to free my mind and discover that there is really not much difference in the teachings of Islam and Christianity or the religions of other cultures that I could have learned to play the piano without hurting my soul and that the issues that sometimes lead to bloodletting have nothing to do with their deity but are often the machinations of men propelled mostly by greed, by selfishness. I have discovered that there are good Muslims, as well as good Christians, the ones who do not consider Islam or Christianity as religion, but as a way of life. But also, there are many bad Christians, and there are many bad Muslims, people who turn the very tenets of their religion upside down, for evil and not for good. Satanic elements who, by some turn of fate, also turn out to be the ones who define what religion is generally perceived to be. They become cogs in the wheel of life itself, piloting the ship into avoidable storms. Where the good books preach love, they preach hate. In place of an almighty deity who is fair and just, they present a vindictive tyrant whose jailhouse is a fiery cauldron, a barbecue grill in which anyone who challenges their tyranny will burn forever in the hereafter. They kill and they steal and they will climb up to the rooftop to persecute the innocent, people propelled by greed in their every endeavor. In all this, one deity stands at the center of all the mystery, and he bears many names and is worshipped in many forms. No one can swear he's ever seen him, yet everyone seems to be able to testify about him. Is he white, black, rainbow? Is he tall, short, thin, fat? He must be all gray by now. If only we knew how old he is, we might just be enabled to settle the issue of the age of man himself. God seems to be everywhere, in plain sight of everyone. In a sense, he reminds me of the moon when I would walk at night under open skies, and the moon would follow me everywhere, keeping pace with me. So, why do people keep fighting about him, over him, or for him, when he seems so openly available to every man? They say he's all-saying, all-powerful, all-wise. So why do people who can hardly protect themselves claim to fight for him when he is most competent to defend himself? Not too long ago, a pastor declared before his large congregation, There are some things my God cannot do. The congregation wheezed from shock. There are some things God cannot do? Blasphemy. There was dead silence. The pastor had to be most certainly possessed, and the demons must have come directly from hell. Until then, he had always reassured his flock that there is nothing God cannot do. 
Upon such proclamation, they had built their faith. Had some demonic prophet perchance laid hands on him? It took another shocked moment for his next words to sink in. God cannot lie, he said. The congregation agreed, exhaled and laughed stupidly, not quite sure what was going on. God cannot do evil, he affirmed. This time, it was relief, but nonetheless dramatic. The congregation erupted with wild laughter, falling over each other, and the pastor, having finally got the full effect he desired, was clearly proud of himself, and his laughter rose above that of the entire congregation. More than I believe in most priests, I believe in the wisdom of philosophers and the sages. Their words are often clear and unambiguous. In the words of Africa's Nobel laureate and literature, Wallace Schoenka, for instance, I find great wisdom when he says, The man dies in all who keeps silent in the face of tyranny. I believe him. That pastor's joke confused me quite a bit. It raised questions the believer dares not ask openly, like, why does God remain so silent in the face of all those bloodsuckers and the vampires who litter our streets, stealing in his name? Scumbags with forked tongues who speak from both sides of the mouth at the same time. Those politicians who rob the people's commonwealth. They play God. As flies to wanton boys, are we to the gods. They kill for their sport. And the God who sees and hears everything does nothing? What is silence if not acquiescence? Why doesn't he simply strike them dead when they so blatantly desecrate his name? But I must be careful so that Walesho Inka doesn't lead me into troubled waters. It's the almighty God we're talking about. Aha, I see. What Shoenka said was man. The man dies. Man. God is not man. Therefore, I must endeavor not to perceive him to be acquiescing. He is being patient. Very patient. Don't they say that the mills of God grind slowly? One day without warning, the end must come for these demons. Yet, that's hardly fair. They build palaces, junket round the world, pile up stolen monies the height of the pyramids of Egypt, and they are allowed to die like the rest of us will also. How does their exit mend the plight of those who suffer because of their misdeeds? They should thank their stars that I'm not God. They would not live long enough to die and be barbecued on the hell with which they cow their victims. I would incinerate them right here on earth. Not even dogs or vultures deserve to be fed such filth. Even that may not fix the damage they do, but justice would have been done and seemed to be done. Don't even try to imagine how I really feel, or the size of wrath I wish I could visit upon them. Decency will not let me voice the expletives that fill my mouth. Thanks for listening, and please make sure to subscribe, follow, and share the podcast, Let the Truth Be Told, and join me every two weeks for a brand new episode. Take care and stay safe.